Hi, it's me, Jeanette Murray, coming back again for podcast number two. I survived my first podcast. I'm proud of myself for doing it. And now I'm going to take another try at it. Because I find that this is a good way to reach out to people and maybe talk to more people than I would have the opportunity to do in my own practice. So if you listen to my first podcast, it talks a little bit about becoming your own healer and using your spirit guides and doing work with other practitioners, but knowing that your healing really happens from within. And having said that, and after I reflected on what I had talked about in my first podcast, I just want to talk about a different topic today because I don't want to give anybody the impression that everything you do to heal yourself has to be done on your own. Let me use myself as an example. I have experienced in my life of several occasions of severe clinical depression. And when I label it that way, I want to distinguish between what most people say depression is, or they say I'm depressed about something, or the, you know we may get depressed over a situation, or we may feel depressed when we have a loss. And that's real depression, and depression is the right term to use. However, when you have clinical depression, it is an illness. It is a sickness that affects you both on the physical and on the mental level. So I'm going to describe to you what my depression was like to give you an idea of what we're talking about here. But also, I'm not discounting any other form of depression because it all fits. So when you're clinically depressed, <clears throat> it's like if you ever read the Harry Potter books about the Dementors, and the characteristic of Dementors is they suck the joy out of everything. That's what it's like when you're clinically depressed. There is no joy. You cannot experience joy. You cannot feel joy. Joy just doesn't register in your brain anymore. And um, having been a very optimistic, happy person most of my life, and knowing what real joy was like, to be devoid of joy was devastating. And there was nothing you could, I could do to make that joy be felt or come back. The other side of the depression was that I could not eat. I completely lost that part of my brain that told me I was hungry or told me when to eat or gave me a sensation of hunger. It was gone completely. And I don't can't even label it anorexia because anorexia, I think, has a, a mental component where a person is afraid to eat or um, is resisting food for some reasons. Not that they can't eat, but it's a, a 
supreme form of control over eating, it's not the same thing. It's not having your brain register the need or the desire to eat. So therefore, I was starving (laughs) during my clinical depression. And I couldn't eat, but I would force myself to take in nourishment because I knew if I didn't, I would die. And I wasn't ready to die, even though there are times during that depression where you wish it would all end and you don't pray to die, but you are just of the mind that if I have to keep living like this, I'd rather not. I'd rather not wake up in the morning. So I'm bringing this out to illustrate a point here about healing and being your own healer. I could not heal myself. I did everything a person can possibly do. I forced myself to walk every day. I forced myself to eat. I went to my church services, which used to bring me great joy. I participated in life, and I continued working at my job. But it was like working in a dark shadow. And I truly do understand when people say the valley of the shadow of death or the dark night of the soul, it's that is really what it is like. And so I don't say this to have anyone feel sorry for me because now I can look back on those episodes in my life and sometimes they would last as long as a year and then they would go away and I would improve and get better and be my normal self again. But at one point in a particularly severe and lengthy bout of depression, I resorted to taking medication and seeing a therapist. Now, I don't tell anybody what they need to do or what they shouldn't do or who they should talk to or who they shouldn't talk to. No. In my case, I was reaching out for whatever help I could get. And so... I took the medication, and lo and behold, it had a positive effect. I'm not saying that you need to take antidepressants, but in my particular case, I experienced immediate relief. It was almost like some vitamin or mineral my brain needed was supplied, and all of a sudden I could function fairly normally. I'm not saying the depression was gone, but it enabled me to function in a way where I knew I wasn't desperately sick all the time. And the therapy, I have to say, was um, beneficial in the fact that I, I opened up and told somebody what I was going through. I, up until that point, being a therapist myself... And feeling very humbled and almost ashamed um, by my condition, it was like, how can I admit to somebody else that I can't heal myself or help myself when I'm a therapist and this is my work? So just the idea that I could go and talk to someone and dump my load on them and have them not condemn me or judge me or you know give me all kinds of advice on what I was doing wrong and how to change my thinking and how to think positively 
none of that works when you're clinically depressed. And by the way, um, just as a word of caution, if any of you know anyone who's clinically depressed, don't tell them to think positive thoughts. And don't tell them to um, change their attitude or to, to be happy or whatever, because that is like a stab in the chest. It hurts when people tell you those things. It hurt me when people would come up to me and say, oh my gosh, you've lost so much weight. How are you doing it? You look great. And that would be like a knife thrust into my gut. <laughs> it's true, but it it's just so interesting to be able to look back and to realize that we don't understand real clinical depression. Now, you know, nowadays, if somebody came up to me and said, oh my gosh, you look so thin, you lost weight, that's great, I would be elated. <laughs> but then it was just, it was just another knife in the gut. So I'm saying this because I don't want people to think, oh, well, I should be able to heal myself. I should be able to snap out of it and be able to think positive thoughts and read all the Louise Hay and Dwayne Dyer and and all these other books and be able to be healed and feel better. But there's something wrong with me because that's not working and I'm not healing and I'm not feeling better. In fact, I'm feeling worse because I can't do it. So the point is... If you're experiencing clinical depression, get help. Don't suffer alone. Talk to someone, particularly someone who's been through it or who understands depression, and do whatever it takes. I was even considering electroshock therapy. I was considering anything that would take me out of the condition that I was in. And if someone had come along and offered me a solution, no matter what it costs, I would have tried it because it's it's that desperate when you are in that state of, of clinical depression. Now, that's, that's the different, that's the heavy duty depression. I'm not talking about ordinary, regular, you know, depression that we all go through at different times. We can be depressed for a few days or maybe a few weeks or we break up with somebody and, you know, we feel depressed because of the loss and the sadness and the feelings of rejection. And, you know, that's, that's real depression too. But that stuff we grow out of. We get past that. And if we don't grow out of it and it gets worse, then it becomes clinical depression. Um, in my case... I don't know what triggered my clinical depression. I don't know where it came from. I think I was genetically endowed with a gene for depression. I think all the women in my family have had or have depression. And so, you know, we can come by depression just by the, the odds that, that we have that gene or that marker for depression. But I would highly recommend that if... If you are depressed or you know someone who's clinically depressed, don't hesitate to get help and don't try to either talk that person into or talk yourself into trying to heal yourself. 
because it's a losing battle and and it hurts more when you keep failing to do that. So having said that, now let's talk about our thoughts and how they influence how we feel and how they affect our moods and our actions and our behaviors and ultimately our health. I had a client years ago who had pretty much given up on her body. She had numerous aches and pains and diagnoses and was on a list of medications and just couldn't get better and couldn't feel physically better. Mentally, she was pretty down about being so handicapped physically, but she had a great sense of humor and loved life and loved to travel, but was always hampered by this body she was dragging along with her. And the more that I got to know her, the more I realized that her illnesses were pretty, mm, how would I say it, psychogenically induced. They weren't necessarily um, like coming down with a really severe illness or, or a disease process that you know has you totally laid out and debilitated. It was more like aches, pains, indigestion, lack of energy, um, high blood pressure, different ailments that were sort of a culmination of a lifetime of limiting herself with her thoughts. And the more that we explored this, the more I realized that it actually started pretty much at birth. She was born premature, and she was born with a tendon that was tight or um, deformed in her neck, which restricted neck movement. It didn't result in torticollis or anything like that. It was just a tightness. So therefore, it restricted arm movements, you know, like maybe not being able to raise your arm in a, over your head or make a big circle with your arm the way um, you can if you don't have that restriction. So that was the, the extent of the disability that she was born with. But the mindset became, I can't do I can't play tennis because of my disability. I can't swim. I can't um, do exercise classes. I can't do yoga. I can't um, pretty much play any sports or do anything physically active because I'm deformed. And this concept became rooted in her personality, in her psyche, in her mind. And she completely lived up to this belief of can't do. And whenever it came to um, an opportunity to maybe put it to the test or question it, it was just a matter of self-fulfilling prophecy all the time. 
Well, see, there it goes. I can't do that. See, there I can't, I can't lift my arm up to do that. I can't do this. I can't do that. And so that mindset just led to more and more debilitating or disabling thoughts. Um, and the and the can't do mindset became her, ex, became expressed in her body, and in her whole approach to living. And it was, it was hard to even confront the thought of, well, you know, this is a belief. This is an ingrained belief. It's very deep rooted. It goes right back to childhood or to infancy. And therefore, it becomes kind of welded into the, the mind, the hardwired. And the person can't even imagine, not even imagine having a different mindset, a different way of looking at herself, a different way of being. And I use the story just as an illustration that that same person had she been told as a child, oh, yeah, you have a stiffness in your neck. Let's do some stretching. Let's get that worked out. Let's do some physical therapy. Let's get you moving again. You know, you can do this. You can do it. It just, it takes work. It takes time. It takes practice. It might be a little painful. Physical therapy usually is painful, most people will tell you. But they do it, and then they overcome the restriction. They overcome the disability. They, they learn to use their arms and hands and legs again. And it's a question of they believe that it's going to help them, and they believe they actually can do it. And it enables them to do it. And then they regain function. And then their lives are fuller and happier. So the power of our thinking, the power of our thoughts, and this is not new information. We all know this. At least any of us that have ever followed any of the the healing workers in the world, any of the writers, um, Louise Hay comes to mind because she was kind of the pioneer of this but also um, Dale Carnegie with the power of positive thinking and, you know, just people down through the years and decades, and I'm sure there's hundreds of more names out there now that I may not even know about or haven't heard of, but people know this information now and they know that the mind has the power to change everything, really. And we can change our health and our physical bodies, but we have to sometimes find out what's the origin of this particular belief that created this particular limitation or disability. And let's get at it. And let's, let's really work on reconstructing the thought patterns and thought patterns are pretty much everything when you, when it comes right down to it when you think about your life and you think well i'm limited in 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 any particular area it can be finding 
your love in your life, finding, um, getting along with people, believing that you can do things, believing that you're lovable, um, all of those thought patterns, those beliefs we have about ourselves affect who we are and how we behave and how we experience life and what our lives are like. Another example is a dear, wonderful person I know who never in her life experienced mother love. She was born into a wealthy family. Father was a doctor. Mother was a fashion model. And they were an interesting um, couple in that early on the mother contracted tuberculosis and and was treated for it and became an alcoholic after that and throughout this child's life living with a with an alcoholic mother who she had to hide from in her bedroom when she'd come home from school she'd hide from her mother until her father got home when it was safe to come out and so this person grew up with this deficit of lacking motherly love, which as a child, there's nothing she could do about it. She couldn't change her thinking. She couldn't say, oh, well, you know, I just have to be able to replace that lack of motherly love with loving myself and finding love from other people. No, a child can't do that. So that child grows into an adult who has a belief that they are unlovable. And so what that leads to is choosing relationships where there's no love, marrying in a, in a, into a marriage where there's no real love, um, reinforcing the belief that I'm not lovable. And... It just got to the point one day in our working together in, in the therapy sessions that I was trying to convey to her the idea that you have to love yourself, which was a, really, when I look back, a, a stupid thing to say. It would be like someone telling me, you have to stop being depressed. <laughs> you have to be happy. And I realized that there's no concept there in her mind. There's no understanding of what that means. How do you love yourself? How does a person love themselves when they have no modeling for that? When all of their thought patterns have told them that you're not lovable. You didn't receive a mother's love, so therefore you're not lovable. And of course her father did his best, but he was a doctor and busy and working all the time and you know, trying to really just keep the mother at bay and and maintain some kind of uh, semblance of normalcy in this world. So there never really was a sense of deep love from coming from, from his direction either. So after I said that, you have to love yourself. Her question, of course, was a very logical one because she's a very logical person. She said, how? How does a person do that? And I had, to, I had to stop for a moment and think because I couldn't, 
I, it was not in my experience to not feel self-love, to not feel loved, and to feel that that I loved myself. I mean, of course, there were times I was down on myself and didn't like myself, but it was just such a an idea that I'd never really entertained that the only thing I could think of was she had dogs and loved her dogs and treated them very well. I mean, very well to the point where she made their own dog food and, and she did incredible things to, to take care of her dogs. And I said, love yourself like a dog. And I even laughed when I said it because <laughs> it's like, treat yourself like a dog? No, she knew what I meant. Treat yourself with love, with kindness, with respect, with caring. Um, honor yourself. Know that you're worthy. You know, your dogs don't go around thinking, well, I'm worthy of being well taken care of and, and therefore I love myself. But they certainly flourished and benefited from the treatment they were getting. So to tell her, treat yourself like a dog, was the closest thing I could come to an understanding of what that love would be like to love yourself. And I find that so many people who I've worked with don't have a concept of self-love. And let me clarify what I mean by self-love. Self-love has nothing to do with pride or narcissism or boastfulness or ego. Self-love is recognizing that you are a unique and wonderful and precious child of God. And if you don't believe in God, you're still unique and wonderful and precious in this world because you are you. There's only one of you. And only you can be you and do what you do. And it's so vital. It's like vitamin L. The vitamin of love is so important. And you have to have a sense of self-love if you're going to feel complete in this world, in this lifetime, on this planet Earth. So many people say, I, I want to find my soulmate. I want to find a true love. I want to find the ultimate partner. I want to find an authentic person. I hear this so often, and yet... They don't think of themselves as that way. They don't think of themselves as authentic or worthy or lovable or unique. And it's such a vital element to have in our consciousness. And when we don't have it, then, then we run the risk of not finding the partner or love that we want or if we choose to be single and are happy with that we can sometimes tend toward the narcissistic side of love and tend to distort 
what could be a good, normal, healthy self-love, it can become a destructive, self-serving, greedy form of love where we don't care about other people. We just focus on me, 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 and what I want and how I want it and how I want to get it. And it's all for me and it's all for my good and to hell with the rest of the world. So that's that's a real distortion when there isn't self-love. And for those of you who know narcissists, you know how difficult it is to live with them. And you can't satisfy their need for love because it's so distorted. And it's hard to put into words and I think of so many personages out there who are are just flaming narcissists who believe that they can just about get away with anything because they believe they're they're worthy of of that and that they're entitled um narcissism is a serious personality disorder and we don't want our self-love of course to go in that direction but it, it narcissism occurs when a person has been very severely deeply wounded as a child and it's not born of real love it's really born of of wounding in in early life and so i have great compassion for narcissists as detrimental as some of them can be because their narcissism tells me that they've been so wounded as children um perhaps overlooked neglected whatever but enough about narcissism let's get back to the thought patterns because there are patterns in all of our lives that are fixed beliefs, fixed notions. And these fixed beliefs and notions can truly affect our mental and our physical health. A person who puts themselves down, negates themselves, and we all do. We all can catch ourselves saying things like, oh, you're so stupid, or that was a stupid thing to do. Why did I do that? What's wrong with me? Is my brain not working anymore? Whatever. We can do those things to ourselves, not realizing that that's a real psychic hit. And that is not a healthy thing to do to our mind and our brain. And I catch myself doing it too. I work with some of the most brilliant people that I I can't even imagine how brilliant they are. Um, People that are accomplishing incredible things in the world, writing books, making movies, doing just amazing things. And yet these people can be often found putting themselves down, criticizing themselves, not feeling good enough. not feeling worthy and I think oh my god if you're not good enough then where where are the rest of us <laughs> so 
To summarize and bring this back all together, and I hope I haven't gone off on too many tangents, but if you followed me so far, just want to emphasize the importance of what we think and what we say about ourselves and how our thoughts and our mindsets and our beliefs can really affect our lives and our fortunes in life and can really limit us and hold us back. And again, as I referred to in my first podcast about using emotion code as a healing technique, I love it because it gets at those hidden blocking beliefs, those deep down ingrained beliefs that really are like little balls of energy that get stuck somewhere in our body. And sometimes when a person can identify, well, they always can identify them in, when we're doing emotion code, but when you can identify those beliefs, those energies are freed up. They're released. There's not that, that little blocking energy anymore. And so that part of their body where it stored that belief, and, you, and a lot of times it's in the heart, that can be just let go and released. And that part of the body can heal and that person can feel differently about themselves and can experience not only physical healing, but emotional healing. And it's a beautiful thing to see happen. So I'm going to leave you with this thought, and it might be a good little homework exercise to do. Just sit down and just write out, what are the negative things you say to yourself? How do you put yourself down? What do you catch yourself saying to yourself that you'd probably never say to another person or to a friend? Write them down. And then in the next column, make make two columns, and in the second column, write down, what would you rather believe about yourself? Change that belief or thought to something that is self-promoting, nourishing, self-loving, respectful, kind. And when you do this, sit back, think about it for a little bit. And if your mind starts going down the road of, oh, but I could never think that about myself. I could never think I was lovable. I could never think that I am worthy, that I am capable of great things. I could never think that. Stop yourself and ask yourself, why can't you think that? So bless you and thank you for listening to this podcast. Stay tuned for more and... I look forward to talking to you again. I love you. Goodbye.